Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Yo, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. How you guys doing? Happy Friday. Good morning, nerds. Is it Friday? Holy crap, dude. I didn't it realize. is Friday. It's September and it's Friday. I wanted to uh, do that macro, 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 macro. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> to say, Sam, it's unfortunate you were not, uh, you were not involved in that theme, meme. I know, man. I, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> the yellow hit it out of the park. Macro, well, it's not macro. such a happy Friday for me. My uh, my riding partner shattered his ankle. So, well, my, you're uh, laughing about it. Well, well, fuck. You should. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, you know. We actually we actually turned around to go back down because what we were doing was like uh, not only over our heads, but it's not something you really want to do on a 600 pound. Uh, enduro uh, bike and um, he he smet, he he shattered it while we were going down. It was kind of ironic. Peter, you made him jump the fountain, didn't you? No, <laughs> no. And you know, hold on. I gotta say, this dude is savage. With a with a broken ankle, he managed to ride the ride the ten miles down that we had uh, we had gone up. And then another 40 miles to get to the town uh, where we got him to the urgent care. And the uh, um, the doctor there said that he didn't understand how it wasn't a compound fracture. Well, at least there's that. That's a win. Is this mountain biking, I assume? No, this is this is uh, off off road uh, uh, adventure uh, motorcycling. Oh, really? Oh, man. <laughs> that sounds fun. Oh no! It wasn't fun at all. It was fucking sheer terror most of the, most of the day. Are you an adrenaline junkie, Peter? Let's see. I ski. I cycle. I motorcycle. That's a yes. I jumped out of airplanes. Um, I've stage dived. No, not at all. Have you ever held shit coins? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the adrenaline. Nah, you know, it was, it wasn't, it was more in, in, at the time that I was holding them, I was still highly infected by the fiat virus. Not quite so much now. And I just, I thought I was diversifying. It's, it's the same freaking thing that almost everybody goes through. Almost everybody goes through that iteration. You buy a little Bitcoin because its number go up. And then you get into some shit coins because you want you to have a diversified portfolio of the of this asset class. And then somebody tells you you're fucking nuts 
and you kind of look at it and you start to go down the rabbit hole that is Bitcoin and you realize that you are nuts and you sell your shit coins. The diversification is, <laughs> you see it time and time again. I, you know, see, I have a crypto portfolio and they're like, these are my platform coins. These are my privacy coins. And they think they're like diversifying against across the space. And you just kind of like got to shake your head because they're all just baited at Bitcoin. They're all just like increased risk <laughs> to Bitcoin. Well, 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 it gets like, I agree, Sam, but it gets even worse. Cause like I, and I, this is why I specifically wrote an article talking about where like that crypto diversification, like you mentioned, is really just like they don't understand that a lot of these shit coins are just downstream from Ethereum. And like the way that Ethereum is set up, like we don't have to go down this like for this today's conversation or anything, but um I like I approach the conversation as like you guys don't realize that these shit coins are built off top of Ethereum. Ethereum is already a broken project to begin with. They're like two levels of leverage that are like mechanically built into these systems on top of the leverage that they're using within derivatives to like pump and dump the price. Like that's that's a nuclear bomb that you just don't want to be a part of. Can can you tweet what you just said? Because there's a lot of people that would identify with that and they can't really say, but the marketing is so good because that's what it is. It's It's always the marketing is so good, but it does this. It does that. It's like, no, it doesn't do that shit. It's just marketing. Yeah, and the partnerships. I, w I won't name – one thing that we saw during the bull market was a lot of these uh, TradFi folks come in and then create products that were, quote-unquote, adding diversification to the space. And um, there's a couple uh, index funds out there that you could go find, and they're down bad. I mean, I, I remember one of them had a ton of Luna – you know, because they were diversifying into Luna, you know, the Bitcoin <laughs> holdings. And um, yeah, you know, it's just, it's one you of mean, these things. You mean that, you mean that Mike guy? You talking about that Mike guy? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to name names or anything. I just, uh, well, I'll it, fucking there's, name there's, his there's name. a lot it's of Mike fucking Novogratz. No, well, okay. No, that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about a different, but um, it's just like, a Dunning-Kruger effect where you come in during the bowl and then they're like, oh my gosh, we can make a ton of money. I'm going to make these investment products. You know, nobody's made a diversified, uh, you know, fund for these different assets and, and it's going to be great. And then the bear market hits and you realize that all these things were crap and you should have done your research. Um, and you basically diversified your Bitcoin holdings with 10% of a total scam. Um, so it's just a lesson learned. It's just understanding why there's Bitcoin and why it's different versus other can, cryptocurrencies. And that's we, kind of further uh, down the money path. Yeah. What's up? Sam, Sam, can we, can we take a moment to appreciate that when you didn't want to name the individual, Peter said, fuck it, I'll do it. And then I don't know if everybody caught it, but like, uh, Sam cracked me up. You're like, no way. <laughs> Dude, I was, I was well, dying on your side. That's not who I was talking about, but you know, he got an unfortunate tattoo. Uh, so I understand Sam's, why Peter's got was... Sam's got more Sam's got more friends than just Novogratz apparently. My brother, my stack chain brother Psyduck, just jump in here, dude. What's up? Oh man, I just wanted to say, like, if the the simplicity of Bitcoin and being Bitcoin only brings a lot of clarity to the space. Uh, there was an event yesterday uh, for uh, Swan Salon, and Corey and uh, Drew from Unchained Capital both had like just very similar stories about how when they realized that 
Bitcoin was really the only asset they needed to focus on, how much simpler that made their business and how it streamlined everything. And I think it's the case for like everything, whether it's your portfolio, your business, or even just how you think about the world like in, in, in life. If focusing on one aspect like that helps weed out all the bullshit. Macro, 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 you're totally right. And it's part of the reason, like, you know, I've been at Swan for a little while now. And in the beginning, it's one of the things we often said with specifically around customer service, because we could focus on just Bitcoin, whereas all these other larger exchanges, even though they had a lot more users than us because they'd been around for many years. They weren't Bitcoin experts because they had to basically spread out all their knowledge, all their engineers trying to support all these different coins. And um, we could just streamline all of our business and just focus on Bitcoin, just be you know, the experts in Bitcoin and provide the best service. And so that's why uh, you know, Corey and, and the other C-suite people too, they, they just hire Bitcoiners. And that's if you even like shitcoin or or you're not like really a Bitcoiner, that's the first thing they figure out in the, in the interview process. And it's just to keep the culture um, intact as we grow. And so I think, I think it was a really smart way to go. Mickey, what's up? Yeah, I just finished in my workout. <clears throat> I, I think the, like the shitcoin diversification thing is like, if most people didn't start out that way, they're probably lying to you, except maybe Odell. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't worry about it too much unless you're like a huge, you know, like the tattoo guy who should not be named. Like that was probably pretty bad because I think he was playing with other people's money. But I mean, if you did it to yourself, you're just using your money and you're not a professional, you know, don't sweat it. We're all in Bitcoin now. It's all good. You, you know what I'm starting to find is a major shit coin drip coffee machines because when it says eight cups on there, it's not really eight cups, dude. It's like four cups. Macro. Macro, macro. Macro. Yeah, that probably macro. has something to do with like interest rates and stuff, Dom. So I don't know. Maybe once the Fed pivots, your coffee will be more abundant. Shrinkflation. <laughs> That was pretty good. I was like, I was typing up that tweet that Peter wanted wanted me to type up, but that was pretty good, Mickey. <laughs> Speaking of shit coins, do you guys see that uh, J.P. Morgan is exploring a blockchain oh, settlement shock. system? I think they've, <laughs> I think they've had J.P. Morgan coin for like a few years. I, I remember they announced that years ago. <laughs> But apparently they're still building it out, those enterprise big blockchains. Is everyone AI so quickly? I thought we moved on to AI now. No, man, we're recycling. We're going back to blockchains. Is everyone being like, oh, man, large language models aren't actually that great. Let's just let's go back to this blockchain thing and see if that, you know, maybe we just didn't we overlook something there. Yeah, I tweeted it with large uh, language models on the blockchain. I mean, large language models on the blockchain, though. You guys ever thought of that? I mean, hey, come on now. We could call it LM token. Someone get Mark Yusko on the phone. This is a good idea. 
Oof. AI is like that little vacuum cleaner that just pivots and rolls around your house. Like people are like, oh, I don't have to vacuum anymore. And then it's like, fuck, my place is a wreck. And then ne- next thing you know, there's fucking streaks of dog shit all over your floors. Hold on. Mark, Yus- Mark Yusko is going to be vacuuming your floor, Dom? Is that what you just said? <laughs> vacuuming up your dog on accident, but on the blockchain. We'll see if he can get the job. Macro, macro, macro. <laughs> Dude, it is hilarious, though. It's just like JP Morgan trying to get into the whole shitcoin space. It's just like, if you you guys haven't clearly haven't done any research to realize that majority of the shitcoins that exist have been trying to like copy what Bitcoin did by being its own thing. And clearly they're all losing against Bitcoin. So like what, just because you're JP Morgan, like you think that you can do this and people will trust it, like get the fuck out of here. Well, I think it brings up a good point though of, um, I've always thought, you know, if JP Morgan, we talk about CBDCs all the time. And obviously um, if, if a private entity uh, kind of partners with the U.S. on a CBDC type type uh, uh, token, they can offer a lot more incentives to lure people into using it versus if, like, the Fed did it. Yeah, I mean, I almost kind of random, would rather have J.P. Morgan going down this, this route, wasting their time and resources. Um, <laughs> like, it would be weird if they were, like, we're going to support Bitcoin and build out lightning infrastructure. Like I'd be very conflicted internally. Um, and so it's good that they're kind of going this route is let them, let them play around in here for another couple of years. And it's not, other, it's like, not you know, good. Reputable Sam, countries. Sam, it's not good because they're, and I know, I know you know this, but they're going to get people wrecked. I mean, that's what's going to happen. And they don't care if they get wrecked because they're so close to the spigot and, and they're and they're and they're one of the five. What is it? is it? Five that are too big to fail. So they, they have nothing to worry about. I mean, obviously, they, they pay billions of dollars in fines and they don't care. They just they don't care that the, the wreckage that they that they create for people. I saw. Oh, yeah. Andrew Howard posted like best of Max Kaiser clips. He tweeted it out yesterday. I'd recommend people yep. to check it out. It's pretty hilarious. But he's like, Jamie Dimon wakes up every morning and goes, like, how can I screw over America? <laughs> or something. And I was like, classic Max Kaiser. If I don't think JP Morgan would come out with like a, a true shit coin with a with like, you know, to the depths. I think you were looking at that article, Sam, that you mentioned, you know, it talks about cross-border payments and settlement stuff. Um, and only moving forward if it was approved by regulators. You know, again, I, I think if we were to see a CBDC again, I don't think we'll see one from the government. I think we would see it from a big bank like J.P. Morgan, where the U.S. gives them carte blanche on regulations, approvals, and then they just load up on incentives. We'll wipe your debt. You can earn yield uh, in the form of treasuries or whatever it is. Well, it's still, I don't know. They say that, you know, they say it would be like a CBDC and I agree they'd have like incentives to it, but it would just be like a new form of the digital dollars that we kind of already have because it would be issued by a commercial bank and not be a direct liability of the Fed technically. So that's kind of the difference because if it's issued by a JP Morgan Chase, 
technically they could default and people could lose their deposits. Now we know that they're too big to fail and they'll just get bailed out. So it's kind of like a little nuance there, but that's the difference between like a CVDC and, and say what the JP Morgan coin would be is that there's no liquidity or default risk with a CBDC technically, but at the same time, JP Morgan Chase would just get bailed out. So maybe I'm just two in the weeds. Yeah, Thank you, what's up? yeah, I sort of see this private stable coin thing in like, I, I, I kind of foresee like the same thing that happened with Twitter, you know, people justifying censorship um, under the guise that they're like a, a private company. Um, and so I, I, I sort of, I'm on the same pages I was talking before. I think, I think the CBDC route will sort of be wrapped in this private sector uh, facade and uh, they'll, they'll be able to do sort of like more censorship than if it were a government issued CBDC under the guise of them being private companies and like doing whatever they want. But that is the way it'll work. Like I'm, I'm one of those people that believes that companies, centralized companies like Twitter and Facebook can, you know, do whatever they want on their platform. I mean, you don't have to use the platform. You're not being, you know, silenced. And I get it. Like they reach a certain uh, inflection point in size and scale to where they want to pretend that they're the, the town square or whatever it is that they try to, you know, whatever buzzword they try to sell to you. But these are centralized, private, you know, whatever companies, public companies, whatever you want to say, but they, you know, you're using their service. There's a terms of service. You're using it. You don't have to use Twitter. Uh, so yeah. And the CBDC, I don't know. I mean, they may say that you have to use it for certain things, right? That's what everybody thinks. But I mean, I, I don't, I think that that is the way that it would work if you're comparing it to that other model. How dare you take a sober take, Ant? How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, Ant, too, Ant, and Ant, they, they wouldn't, you know, someone like J.P. Morgan, they wouldn't have to make you use anything. They have the depth to incentivize you to beyond the point of making it, you know, uh, so lucrative that you're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm using this for sure. I, I get, you know, uh, airline miles, um, you know, balance transfers, like, like it's a, it's a symphony of, of benefits and, and luring people in that look, if we're looking at what the situation, we talk about this all the time, the people that, uh, the situation people are in is, is not well, right. Lots of credit card debt, um, inflation, they're taking hits. So that's an opportunity to incentivize people into a system. And someone like JP Morgan can do that <clears throat> to the next level. Yeah, they'll give away a little bit of money, but I mean that's on the that's on the cost side for them. I mean the other side is the control side, where like similar to like food stamps and things like that, these these monetary instruments that we're already seeing coming from the government in different quote unquote like programs, where you can only spend it on certain things. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've already seen like the predictions that that the CBDCs would be incentivized to spend through a like uh, retirement measure or a like expiry date uh, or you know, I mean, it, it's the same thing, like with money that you get from the government on like some of these programs, like you can't buy certain things like you're not going to go buy lottery tickets, for example, with your food stamps, you know, and I think I could even see like a like a fractured, if that's the word or 
I don't think that's the right word, but a bunch of different CBDCs for different stylized purposes where, you know, you may end up with a bunch of different buckets of money that's like kind of trapped in different places, like for different corporations and things. It's shenanigans. Well, that's kind of. That's what I was going to say. It's going to be interesting to see this. There's going to be competition between the private stable coins. I mean, there already is, but PayPal announced their stable coin recently. They have, I think, 400 million users. Um, and I think each one's going to offer different incentives to try to get them, uh, get users on to use their stable coins. And so it's going to be interesting to see the tactics, like whether maybe they'll start to uh, offer interest on them. Um, and so, but it's, it's exactly the system that we have. Like we have a system that's completely siloed. Like Venmo can't, you can't send a Venmo payment using a different payment network. And so they're not interoperable. So that's the big thing with Lightning would be you have one protocol that's like, and Bitcoin, it's all interoperable with one another, right? And that's kind of what David Marcus talks about. He's like, it's just like email. Like you don't have to, you can send emails regardless of what you're using. You're just using the protocol. Uh, but if you just have all these different private stable coins that aren't interoperable with each other, like how is that innovative at all? The, the best Mike, part, what's up? Oh, sorry, Sam. I just wanted to say the best part is going to be when they figure that out, when the JP Morgans of the world figure that out, they're going to act like they knew it the whole time. On top of that, Peter, you know, it gets really interesting in this conversation, guys, as far as the competition goes. What happens if, like, if this stuff, these rumors with all this criminal activity with Binance comes down? Because, like, um, those of you, like, I'm assuming all of us up here have experience with regards to the, the, the shitcoin world. Um, Binance became very rapidly reliant upon uh, USD Tether uh, early on, like, back in 1718. And it, that, that kind of, like, reliance has only continued and grown. Um, I think that if this, if these actions come down on Binance, Tether is probably going to get wrapped up in it. And if things happen at Tether that like, now this is all speculation, obviously, but if things happen on Tether and that pushes a lot of that, uh, desire for use of stable coins elsewhere. Now, the other problem too, is that a lot of these projects we're talking about are us based, right? And Tether was primarily used over in Asia to get access to use of dollar liquidity and everything i i think things that with the within the stable coin space alone outside of bitcoin are just going to get really really volatile and really really interesting volatility in the stable coin market <laughs> yeah yeah because don't don't forget uh blackrock and larry fink also have uh also have access to their own stable coin through uh, the Circle Reserve Fund and USDC, which a lot of people have been poking fun at USDC of like, you know, the, the liquidity has been diving lately, but things could change rapidly if the whole Binance and Tether relationship gets blown up. Yeah, I wouldn't use the Binance USD stable if I was going to use a stable. They would lose that competition in my mind. But also Coinbase took a minority stake in in Circle recently too. Just yeah, and, and a lot the combo. of these, Sam, a lot of these, you know, competing private side, all their roads lead back to JP Morgan. Um, I think PayPal banks with JP Morgan. Obviously, JP Morgan is huge behind Coinbase. And so some of these, you know, lower players. 
that seem to be like doing their thing, like all the roads lead back to, or most of the roads lead back to JP Morgan. It always leads back to JP Morgan. Dom. Everything. <laughs> it all leads back to that racquetball club in the steam room with, with, uh, with Jamie Fink, Gensler, you, all roads lead back. And it, they're just right there in the steam room. Just, uh, I wish there was, I wish we had a, someone in there we need to get like tone vase in there or or uh peter in there to just get us some intel like yeah dude i'll you should hear what they're saying about bitcoin well with their reptilian lifespans i wouldn't be surprised to learn they were at, at literally at that jekyll island meeting in 1913 do you reptiles know, live longer know. than mammals yes Look at these are space yeah. reptiles wicked and, and on top of that, Dom, you realize that that scene that you're discussing actually comes from Mel Brooks and um, the scene in um, Blazing Saddles when they're all sitting around the table playing with the, the paddle balls. Yeah, man. No, it's real, dude, for sure. In other news, did you guys see that Coinbase is trying to expand internationally now? After they trying dismissed the SEC lawsuit, they're trying to expand internationally. So to markets with quote unquote clearer rules for the crypto industry. So I think this is what they always say, like that innovation is going to move offshore. I think Coinbase is like threatening to move which is, which is interesting. They're, they're uh, taking advantages of uh, Binance getting beaten up, trying to ex expand their, their, uh, their grasp. Tone, good morning. Morning, guys. If Coinbase moves offshore, how are they going to be the prime custodian for BlackRock? Morning, guys. I don't see why that makes a difference. Uh, they'll still, they can still be the custodian for BlackRock. They won't care. Though I'm not sure why these institutions need custodians. Like, that's the other thing that, like, uh, they should hold the Bitcoin themselves. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> again, like, if you need a custodian, uh, and this is what bothers me a little bit about what Sailor is doing, like he's using uh, Coinbase as a custodian. He knows Coinbase is like an evil company for Bitcoin. So it like bothers me. I think, I think Taylor, I mean, I think MicroStrategy is no longer using Coinbase. But I'm not 100% on that. I think I saw that somewhere. I think they might have switched. But I think part of the reason why these big institutions don't do that tone is because there isn't insurance um, yet, really, like a, a robust insurance market for the risk that they take by taking self-custody yeah, but large, large but, amounts. But how does that solve their problem, right? Like, it's, uh, if Coinbase loses it, do they have, are they insured? I think that there's some level of insurance, but it's not fully covered it's it's like this like 
pseudo insurance because it's not fully covered and you have to read this fine print. I think only like one insurance firm like is offering insurance products right now. I forgot the name of it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like an issue. I mean, custody for any non-individual is always going to be an issue, right? And you're trying to figure out who's in control of funds that they don't own. And that's always a difficult thing to do, whether it's a company or a nation state or whatever, or even like, you know, a personal estate, right? Deciding who's in control of, of any sort of money is always going to be a, a, a problem to an extent. So I don't know if like, you know, quote unquote, microstrategy taking their Bitcoin into self-custody. What does that even mean? Like microstrategy is not a person. So they can't take their Bitcoin into self-custody. What they can do is they can decide, okay, you know, we're going to have people on our board have keys and do some sort of multi-sig, but like you're trusting the people on the board. And so the question is, can you trust those people more than you can trust the people at Coinbase? And that's, you know, the calculation that they have to make. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But if you look at it, you know, one step higher, um, if the U.S. government decides to confiscate all the Bitcoin, uh, Coinbase will just hand them all over. So will the people. But on the board. if you have, uh, so will the people well, on the board, Tom? Um, it's a little bit different, right? Because that company could potentially take a stand against the government confiscation. All, we of, know all Coinbase. of the U.S. citizens who are on the board, I'm assuming they're all U.S. citizens, will hand over the keys. How would it look if the company does or does take a stand, like you're saying, Tom? Everyone on the board has to run out of the United States. Otherwise, they go to jail. Well, potentially. Well, not everyone on the board um, has to be in the United States. It has to be a U.S. citizen. I don't know if that's necessarily a requirement for a board of your company, even if it's a U.S. company. I don't know. Like, I'm just saying, I don't know. I haven't looked into that far. Like, I've never been on a board of a company. And... Um, there's no saying you can't hold the keys offshore. Remember, there's no regulation on how to protect and hold your multi-sig keys, right? Like there, right. there is no it's, government it's regulation not, on it. It's not so much where the keys are. It's 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 more so like what kind of pressure can you put on the holders of the keys? Because your keys might be offshore, but if the government comes and points a gun at your head, you're going to go get those keys offshore most likely. Hey, wicked. Uh, there, I mean, potentially, right? I mean, like this is what happened. Remember the um, the email service that Snowden was using. Uh, the owner of that service. I mean, it's similar to Proton Mail, right? It works the same way, where the the content of your email is encrypted, and uh, the pressure came in on the uh, on the company to hand over uh, the encryption keys, which they may or may not even had, and the owner of that company took a stance and deleted all the encryption keys. And he's like, nope, you're not getting them. And I'm willing to go to prison for it. And uh, that's what happened. So I'm just saying there is a better chance that a company like MicroStrategies that believes in Bitcoin will take a stance against the U.S. government confiscating that Bitcoin than their custodian would. I'm yeah, not I, saying I, it will definitely happen, but at least there's a chance. I think, I think that's right, too. And Wicked, they have, you know, look, they may crumble. You need a gangster board, right? You need a board that's down to ride. But boards also have fiduciary insurance. If you had a tight-knit board, let's just say it was me, you, Wicked, and Tone on the board of a company. Um, if we lost our keys, there's 
they, they oftentimes have insurance, uh, you know, different things to kind of protect and it wouldn't truly be lost, but yeah, you'd have to have a, a board that was down to ride. I, I think still a better chance than a custodian, but like Wicked saying, they could fold very easily with enough pressure. Surfer Jim, good Surfer morning. Jim. Oh, hey guys. Uh, thanks for uh, for uh, this discussion. It's always great listening to you guys. Um, um, ignoring for a moment the the legal perspective, um, the uh, the uh, obligation of the board, their fiduciary responsibility, that kind of thing. Just simply from a technical perspective, MicroStrategies is in the business of software. Um, they should have some pretty smart engineers, and they should have enough money to pay people to be able to create their own self-custody, similar to what River does, right? Um, some people have figured it out. And to my knowledge, most of these people who are custodying large amounts of Bitcoin have not been hacked. And so there is a way. Uh, I would imagine Michael Saylor is working on that. I would be surprised if he actually wasn't, simply because of all the things you guys just brought up. They would be much more likely to resist giving up their Bitcoin to some government mandate than Coinbase certainly would. And so I'd be of the opinion and certainly would hope that Michael Saylor is working on this and just not telling anybody. But I'd be curious uh, from some of you technical guys like Wicked who has his hand up now, what, what, what would be the problem? What would be the reason they wouldn't want to do that? I, I can't imagine there is one, but I'd love to hear somebody else who's smarter than me about this stuff. Thank you. I mean, I think what would be interesting is if they started to do things like time lock their Bitcoin, where you literally can't spend it <laughs> no matter what you do. But in order to do that, you have to have, you know, you have to have it in your own custody, right? I don't think, I don't think Coinbase custody services are going to time lock your chunk of Bitcoin for you. Although that'd be an, that, that'd also be an interesting service. Like imagine if you could have some sort of collaborative custody where, you know, you time lock shit, that'd be cool. Um, so, I mean, I think that'll add another layer and interesting dimension to this custody dis discussion, but it all goes back to like, how easy is it for the people in control of the keys to be co-opted? Because, you know, you can have the keys distributed as much as you like, but if the people who are in control of them can be co-opted, then, you know, then you're fucked. And I think when you've got you know, like a lot of people, they, they go straight to the, well, if the government, you know, it goes AWOL and requires Coinbase and, and Grayscale to hand over their Bitcoin. Like in that situation, you don't think the government's going to go fucking point some guns at all of the key holders of the MicroStrategy Bitcoin if they had taken it into self-custody? It'd be the same story. They'd hand it over immediately because they're not going to want to go to jail. And these motherfuckers are like, you know... <laughs> they're not going to survive in jail. They, they would just hand over the Bitcoin. So I, mean, I don't think that's a good strategy. I think what you need is something more like, like you literally can't give them the Bitcoin. Like, sorry, it's locked for 10 years. Come back in 10 years and we can talk. And then like, you know, 10 years later, <laughs> you just fucking time lock it again. Oh, whoops, finger slipped. I time locked it for another 10 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's the best strategy when you're dealing with these large amounts of Bitcoin that could be confiscated. Hey, Wicked, I, Wicked think got, I think you got a new company, Wicked, where um, basically like hardened board members that will ultimately ride for the company and board 
and do prison time and will not hand over your Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I'm not going to prison. I've been to jail and it sucks. I can't imagine what prison is like. I'm not going to prison. Hey, Wicked, would you uh, would you say that this exact risk that you just described is present for anybody who's custodying people's Bitcoin, like River, who seems like a good actor in the space? Um, you know, people point guns at the, the people there. Uh, I could see the same action being taken. Like, it's not my Bitcoin, and I'm not going to jail for these other people. Uh, yeah, that- I mean, River, so Swan, Cash App, all of, all of these exchanges are going to hand over the keys if they get guns pointed at them. That's just the assumption. You know, like, I don't think, you know, as much as I like the guys at Swan, right? I mean, I'm here every day. You guys are cool. Like, I don't think y'all are going to go to jail to, you know, keep your 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 people's Bitcoin. I mean, maybe you'll, I don't know, maybe you would, but but I doubt it, right? And so I just, I just assume that any custodian is going to hand over the keys when they get guns pointed at their heads. Well, I mean, this I mean, basically, we're just talking about like counterparty risk here. And this is why we push self-custody so much. And the vast majority of our clients take self-custody. Um, you don't have to deal with any of this stuff or worry about any of this stuff. I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, like it's it's a matter of it being in a honeypot. So, you know, right now we're talking about a large amount of Bitcoin which is always going to be in a honeypot for market strategy, whether they choose to have a custodian or not, that chunk of Bitcoin is going to be a big fucking honeypot. So if the government ever goes AWOL, you know, micro strategy might choose to quote unquote self custody their own Bitcoin and they're going to distribute the keys to their board members and yada, yada, yada. But it's going to be the same big honeypot that's going to be, you know, the government's going to come after it. So like, for micro strategy, I don't really know if it makes much of a difference, like leaving it with a custodian or not. I think the governments, if they want it, they're going to fucking get it, or there's going to be a lot of people that go to jail, right? And so, or for an individual, obviously it makes it makes more sense to self custody. Government's not going to come knocking on, you know, the door of Joe Schmo who has, you know, half a bitcoin, right? That that that, that he took into self custody, like that makes a lot more sense. Um, but for a larger company, I don't know if it really does, to be honest. I think. Uh, oh, sorry, Sam. I just wanted to say he just hit exactly what I was thinking: is that Bitcoin in custody by individuals might just be a lot safer, even if they happen to have a lot. It might just be a lot safer than institutional custody at any level, whether it's an ETF or a Coinbase or a MicroStrategy taking their own custody. It seems like the individual can get away with uh, plausible deniability a lot easier, perhaps. And it's easier to time lock it. I mean, I, I tell you what, if the government starts going AWOL, I'm time locking the majority of my Bitcoin. I swear to God, I will fucking time lock that shit for a decade or more until things cool down. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's the, that's the choice you get as an individual. If you have it custodied on an exchange or if you're a big company and, you know, you need a bunch of, of buy-in from board members who are all holding keys – I mean, that type of action is a lot harder to take and, it, and, and the wheels are going to move a lot slower and you might run out of time. As an individual, you can just be like, doop, 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 you know, like four clicks and you fucking time lock it. So, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, but so, uh, so, so again, this is why, I mean, look, we're comparing one company with a lot of Bitcoin to a custodian, right? You got to think, you know, years down the line where you can have three custodians holding Bitcoin on behalf of a thousand companies, or 
a thousand companies are self-custodying that Bitcoin. Once again, it becomes a lot harder for the government to attack a thousand companies at the same time versus three custodians. And the moment a single company faces this problem, the other companies realize they shouldn't even be American companies anymore. The company itself, you know, it incorporates, you know, in an island or why even incorporate in the future? Uh, I mean, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm the only one promoting liquid sidechain, but it doesn't matter, right? Like, hell, have your public shares on uh, as a, uh, on a Bitcoin sidechain, right? Like, the company doesn't even need a domicile at that point. Like, hey, if the government is going after MicroStrategy's Bitcoin, shit, we're going to time lock our Bitcoin. Like, once it's at a custodian, boom, one phone call, everything's gone. I think I just this heard a liquid U base. I, you know, maybe I'm being optimistic here, but if you say the government goes AWOL, I, I, I don't know what you exactly mean by that wicked. No, not AWOL. Government goes government. Guns. It's like, uh, what's his name's uh, famous uh, comedy line, Chris Rock? Tiger won tiger. It didn't go crazy. The government's going to go government. <laughs> They're going to try to confiscate this shit. You think, that, okay. Well, I don't know if they'll go directly to jail. Like, I mean... They would go probably go to the courts. I mean, this would be an unconstitutional seizure of billions of dollars worth of property of a yeah, public it, company. It would be if the government went AWOL. Like, you know, this would be like all gloves off, you know, like type of situation here where the government's just stealing from everybody at that point, like like outright. Which they reserve the right to do. <laughs> All right, how is it how is it different than the gold confiscation of 33 like i uh, well, the, the, that, everything that, is going to repeat just 100 years later with that confiscation i mean they had a super majority right so so pushing that through was super easy whereas now there's no way they're going to ever push that thing through and so the only way it's going to happen is if you've got like a, a completely you know, corrupted government who just says, well, fuck it. Like we're stealing everything and we're not paying attention to the laws. We're not going to go through the courts. Whereas with the gold confiscation, with that supermajority, they were able to do it legally because they, you know, they just voted on but it. Again, there's, the no, there's no difference between that and a similar thing to confiscate Bitcoin. They're not confiscating your dollars. They're not going to confiscate your CBDC. They're not going to confiscate your they, house. They're not going to confiscate they your car. They're going to confiscate the Bitcoin with the gold. And it was easy to confiscate the gold because nobody was self-custodying the gold. It was sitting at a few banks. Yeah. And, and to be clear, again, like the, the ties are very, you know, they're very similar here. Like, nobody's uh no private citizens gold got confiscated if they're if they had it in self custody at home right there, there wasn't any government officials knocking on any private citizens That's correct. getting their gold so it was only gold that was in the honey pots so this is again like it's just it, the, the parallels are just great it's like self custody your fucking hard money you dumb motherfuckers Just for the sake of accuracy, AWOL means absent without leave, and I think it's something that most of you would appreciate if the government did, so just just for accuracy's sake. I think that one major difference between, you know, the 1990, whatever, Order 6102, when President Roosevelt uh, confiscated gold, was that gold was at the heart of the, the monetary system at that point, like Bitcoin. Is like a parallel system. And so they did that back then, Tone, to basically be allowed to devalue and, and expand. Yeah, the but, 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 but
gold being the center of the monetary system should have made it a lot harder to confiscate than something that is considered to be for criminals anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the government had a reason, like they had to save the system and expand the monetary base at that time, and the gold was at the center of the entire global monetary system. I don't know if they would they just feel so threatened by Bitcoin at that point that you think that they would act like that because it's not at the center of the global monetary system right now. Or are you thinking like way down the line when it when its adoption is so high that well that, I'm that, thinking I'm thinking down the line when its adoption is increasing to a level where they are fearful that Bitcoin is about to replace the monetary system. And in order to save the current monetary system, they have to confiscate all this Bitcoin in custody. And right now, it's already scary what percentage of Bitcoin is in, uh, is held by a few custodians, all you know, forced to comply with U.S. laws that can come in over a weekend. Yeah, Surfer yeah. Jim, we can hear you type in. Yeah, are you typing with two fingers, Surfer Jim? Yeah, that would be two finger type for sure. <laughs> also, we all, know, we all know your password now. So, sorry, worry, I, I didn't know too. I was. <laughs> well, it's always fun to. I, I always like going back to the, the seizure of gold back then. It was such a crazy thing to do in america <laughs> there's nothing else like it wicked what's up Speak, speaking of passwords just total pivot here do you guys see that on cold card you can you can use it as a password manager and it can like type in so you know caveat here you got to plug it in right so if you had a designated cold card for password management you can plug it in and you basically using bip 85 are able to uh index you know whatever passwords you want and then when you're when you've got it plugged in, you click on any sort of text field, and then on the cold card, you click on which index of the password you want to want it to like populate in that text field, and then it auto populates it. So you don't have to type in your passwords anymore. You can just like click the index on the cold card, and then it populates that password for whatever you know whatever one you want. So it's kind of neat using it as a password uh, a generator. You guys see that at all? I did not see that. BTC sessions just put a video out for it, so you should check it out. He is my go-to tutorial YouTube channel. The best of the best. Yep. I'll try to nest it. We can we can continue the other conversation. I was gonna pivot anyway, man. I was gonna pivot to uh, you know another FTX executive pleading guilty, Ryan Salami, who. I've honestly, I've followed for months and months and months. This guy was like so ingrained into this entire fraud. Um, you know, he's the one, he, he said he forfeited $1.5 billion, which is more than they sought from SBF. And this guy um, was the one at the heart of the political donations. And he just pleaded guilty. So another bad boy is, is, behind or going to be potentially behind bars due to the FTX blow up. I don't know. I don't know when SBF's 
trial starts. That's going to be going to get your popcorn ready for that one. It would Wait, be funny we, if they televised it. What are we? What are we getting our popcorn ready for, Sam? I missed that. Like you talking about the trial? SPS trial. Yeah, it's going to be some entertaining stuff. It's going to be a case study on socio- sociopathy. I can tell you that. He's just going to keep smiling at the camera, thinking that nothing's going to happen to him. No, I think there's going to be a lot of crying. I hope so. <laughs> I just can't get over how this guy had $1.5 billion. And it's sad to say, but like how much money is did he get away with, you know? Is that only a portion of the funds? Does he have it in other offshore accounts somewhere? You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of sad. I hope he has it on Binance. Bro. No, he just has it on FTX 2.0. Have you guys checked that out yet? That site's amazing. <laughs> so it actually you see Lola Leeds talking. Uh, I think she was on what Bitcoin did, but apparently chain analysis is not is not like accurate. You know, it doesn't doesn't actually do anything, and so that's sort of interesting. Where like it might it might go the way of like. I don't even remember what it's called. Those lie detector tests that are like now inadmissible in court, you know, sort of. Oh, like the polygraph. Yeah, polygraph. That's it. What, chain analysis isn't accurate. Is that the statement? Yeah, yeah. It like doesn't do anything. There's like no scientific basis behind it. It's just sort of like guessing. It's, it's assumptions based, right? Like if if someone spends an entire UTXO and it's some odd amount, but it's the entire thing, you can kind of assume that they're just sending it to themselves or like, you know, getting a new setup. Right. Whereas if they split it and they, and they pay out like a very round number or a round number that's dollar denominated, you can kind of assume that they're spending it. So, I mean, there are assumptions you can make that can, you can start to make these graphs of, of, of different on-chain analytics and, and gain some insight from it. But of course, it's all probabilistic, right? Like you don't actually know for sure with certainty unless you've got KYC on both ends. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if you map out the whole UTXO set and you've got everything fucking mapped out and it's a giant set, it's like 150 million UTXOs now, you can gain some pretty valuable insights from watching the movements of those UTXOs. And that's, you know, that's just a fact. So what you're saying is you don't attach an ordinal of your driver's license to every on-chain transaction you make? Is that is that accurate? Well, no, you're you're required to do that. So actually, if you live in the EU and you don't do that, then they're going to throw you in jail. So that's the new requirement. I always think it's fun when people, like Bitcoiners, are like, yeah, let's go to Portugal or, or whatever and then europe's got these like crazy laws and it's like okay portugal like that's cool but like can you buy an ak-47 there you know like that's that's sort of you know it's like out of the frying pan into the fire but with like a nice view i guess 
I uh, just don't mean to derail this conversation in particular, but I, uh, you guys are talking about FDX 2.0, and I saw some recent video from BitBoy 2.0, who is going to start over again. I figured you guys might enjoy uh, laughing about his antics and uh, enlightening those who are listening who might be new to this, uh, uh, that they need to stay away from people like him because uh, he's, he's a fool. Yeah, so, I mean, basically what these grifters have figured out is if they lie about their numbers and they say they're really good at trading and they say that they know the next big coin, then you're going to get enough low IQ plebs out there who are going to think that they're not lying and they're going to follow them. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I think it's pretty easy if you've got a certain type of personality to kind of fool a certain type of person, right? And there's a lot of these types of people out there you know we, we sometimes we call them sheep right <laughs> but like you know it, it's it's money for the taking someone's gonna do it um so i'm not surprised that someone like bitboy crypto is doing it right it's like if there's money on the table someone's gonna grab it and so there's a lot of fools that need to lose their money before they learn not to uh touch the stove well what's what's worse is that they weaponize um particularly the economic situation of the lower and the middle class. And then they also weaponize the desire for these individuals to be part of a community, especially be part of like what they see as the future of the innovation that's coming. And they use that to their advantage to where they suck in a lot of these effectively suckers into uh, thinking that they can make a bunch of money really quickly, uh, get rich quick scheme. Like, dude, BitBoy is probably one of my, favorite deplorable personalities in this entire space yeah pretty much second to richard hart you guys don't feel oh, bad hey guys, guys i gotta sorry he got kicked out of say, i gotta jump off his limbo poor guy see you tone have a good one man enjoy your friend. see you tone i um hey guys i gotta i gotta jump off it was fun uh talked a little bit of macro um Oh, is my connection still there? Yeah, we macro. got you. Macro, 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 macro second hour, second hour macro. tone, macro, macro munching, micro. Wait, tone, before you go, speaking to macro, look, we nailed it. $70 oil barrel. We called that in the summer. Everyone else said we were idiots, but we nailed it. I wanted to say one thing about BitBoy before we go macro, macro. Um, like I, I'm, I'm like hesitant to call out individual people, but when I see like there's actually hardcore evidence against them in terms of front running clients, um, saying one thing in front of the camera while doing another thing behind closed doors. Um, Zach XBT is a really respected on-chain sleuth, tracked all of his activities and his wallets. Um, the evidence is all there um, of what he did. He would basically market that he was doing one thing while selling, you know, lying to the viewers, pumping up coins and dumping them personally, you know, and I just think this bear market has been really good. It's been a huge cleansing. I've been very savage. Like basically anybody who acted disingenuously um, has got the chopping block. And so when I see people like BitBoy, like I don't want to see him come back. And I think it's only a matter of time before, regulators come down on him hard because the evidence is there 
I mean, it's it's right there. So well, Sam, Sam, it gets even better because I don't know if you guys did. You guys see that uh, the U.S. and UAE came into agreement to be able to provide regulatory and authoritative uh, influence. So, like a lot of these, um, a lot of these crypto personalities and influencers have been kind of uh, having a pilgrimage out to Abu Dhabi to to effectively hide out from the U.S. Uh, like authoritative state. So like I'm hoping that like Abu Dhabi and the the United Arab, Arab United Arab, blah, 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 United Arab Emirates Jesus, um, I hope that they're coming to a conclusion. They're like, yeah, we need to get these people like kind of like burned out. Like <laughs> that's going to be a lot of fun to watch if that actually does start coming down. And he and Bitboy specifically just recently relocated to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> He, he thinks he's getting safe, and then, like, two weeks or a week later, like, you get this announcement, like, hey, we're going to start working together to uh, be able to squash down on criminals. He's like, fuck. Yeah, those are just the flashy ones. There's There are others who are probably shitting their pants right now, given the recent activities around these two, and they're probably waiting with bated breath to see how this all plays out for those guys. Can they escape? Macro, macro, macro. This is the best meme ever. Yeah, Matt, let's... Um, it was great. Great conversation, guys. But I, I would like to pivot to macro. Macro, macro. Macro, macro. Um, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I actually... I, I wrote a whole piece about oil uh, recently, and it's... I think it's, I've been calling it the X factor for a long time because I think it throws a wrench into a lot of things if we get oil kind of ripping. So I didn't know that you and Tone were calling for 70. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about oh, this. Oh, no. Um, sure. Happy to, Sam. Uh, I guess I should have added some context. So back in the summer, uh, when oil was skipping along at $70 a barrel, Tone and I were saying, actually, we think this is a bottom. We think this is, if you were, I mean, if this was for some reason your asset of choice, um, this is probably as cheap as you'll get. And the reasons we were looking at were, um, uh, yes, cooling inflation, but bigger picture, uh, you had Saudi Arabia and various OPEC nations agreeing to cut production to put a stop, uh, to put a floor underneath the price of oil. Um, every single month we live with the possibility that there might be an unfortunate escalation uh, in uh, Russia, Ukraine, which will only send the price of oil up, not down. Um, and, uh, you know, for a lot of other reasons, a smaller smaller reason, but it, it's, it's, it's meaningful. The Strategic Oil Reserve does not have infinite oil that they can sell uh, cheap onto the market. Eventually, that will have to taper off and then buy back in. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, that was just a smaller, smaller point. If people were talking about, oh, here we come, just like 2020, $50 and $25, and what if oil goes negative? What does that mean? Like, guys, that's not, that's not happening. I'll never forget that negative oil day. That was, that was a wild day. Yeah, you know, I, I just think about Jackson Hole, so the recent meeting with all the central bankers um you know i'd say that they were pretty humbled um 
by what they're seeing, like not only do they not see inflation, but they, they can't really explain how they're getting a bunch of disinflation without the unemployment going up because according to their models, like the Phillips curve, they should be seeing that. And they're just like, I don't really know why we're seeing disinflation without, you know, a recession or unemployment going up. They're like just baffled by it. Um, and what they're realizing is that there's a lot of things that are out of their control and making monetary policy basically uh, not suited for the job because they can't control the price of oil. It's based on like supply and demand and they can't control fiscal authorities spending like drunken sailors. And so these fed officials are just kind of pulling on these levers that don't really have any uh, sway over some of these drivers of inflation. Yeah. Matt, what's up? No, I agree. I agree. And I, you know, so, we, we like to make fun of them, but I have a feeling some of them in private rooms in private uh, uh, settings are smart and they understand exactly what they can't say out loud. Uh, what they can't say out loud is $5 trillion in fiscal spending in 2020 and then in, in a little bit in 2021. That absolutely skyrocketed inflation. The Fed's uh, buy everything assets, you know, junk bonds to literal equities in the market with the help of um, BlackRock as their go-between. That absolutely juiced all sorts of inflation everywhere. And they can't say that part that, look, this 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 economic mess was largely uh, a cause, a direct cause of exactly what we and Congress and President did in 2020, 2021. You can't say that part out loud. Um, so, yeah, they're publicly scratching their heads. Although I don't know where, where this disinflation. I, I I feel like they're once again just trying to piss on our heads and call it rain. You know what's crazy though is that, and I I tweeted about this, but in the Bank of International Settlements annual report, they kind of do admit it, Matt. They they say like. You know, although they kind of justify those trillions and they say, like, you know, during the pandemic, we had to do these ultra accommodative policies. And then they go, but it seems like we overdid it. And one of the major drivers of inflation was those policies. And I just thought it was crazy to see that in writing of kind of the admission that their policies were one of the biggest drivers of inflation from the biz, all people. Well, it's probably safe to say it over there, you know, because uh, other than yourself and a few others, like who's reading, <laughs> who's who's reading those reports and those policies. Um, but yeah, and, and the part there, the part that they um, leave out is, quite frankly, inflation might normalize simply because they stopped doing this ridiculous, uh, 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 you know, button pushing and maneuvering. Uh, in the in our economic system in our economic markets um are prices going back to 2018 2019 nope never not unless you have a true recession version on depression but um will inflation normalize yeah probably and, and we're seeing that did you guys see uh that krugman krugman tweet let me, let me try to pull it up. Yeah, he goes, over the past couple of days, 
I've had several conversations with smart people who follow the news and had no idea that inflation is way down, presumably hasn't broken through at all to the wider public. And then uh, my buddy Julian uh, Farr, he says, prices are still higher and rising. Everyone is still poorer, probably has something to do with it. Quote, unquote, I don't get why people aren't able to casually calculate the second derivative of prices of a basket of goods in their head and then fail to give the government credit for that arbitrary number being negative. <laughs> and I thought it was just so funny. <laughs> Paul Krugman's just in his own world, per usual. Well, they all are, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the people on this stage and those listening below, like, you, most of you, most of us have memories that are longer than a goldfish we remind we remember what prices were in 2018 and 2017 and 2016 and like okay fine uh the price of my uh eggs and chicken are less than this time last year or maybe they're no they're not less go up right right. they're they're only three percent more instead of five there you go right so so (laughs) but that doesn't who 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 Who's impressed by that? No one cares about that, except the economists that are, I don't know, making you a living off of two, these predictions. You gas? You remember that? That was nice. Polly. Uncle Polly's impressed by that, man. I just can't believe right, it. Right, that's the thing. That's true. The older, five bucks. Get, the older you get, the more you like to reminisce about prices back in my day. So... <laughs> Yeah, the prices at the pump are rising. Prices at the pump are rising. Back in my day, a pound of ground beef cost 20,000 sats. Let me just read. I finally found this, like, the biz excerpt that I was mentioning, and I just think it's extraordinary. So they say, with the benefit of hindsight, the extraordinary monetary and fiscal stimulus deployed during the pandemic, while justified at the time as an insurance policy, appears too large, too broad, and too long-lasting. It contributed to the inflation surge and to the current financial vulnerabilities. That's straight from the biz. Does the next line say, if only we had had a CBDC to have more direct (laughs) No, that's ironic. That's the entire next section. (laughs) It's like the next 40 pages. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the stage uh, John Har from Swan. Welcome, John. What's up, guys? As I joined, and you were talking about uh, inflation and you know rate of change and things like that, I thought you already had brought up the Krugman tweet, and uh, but yeah, it was funny that that led into it perfectly. And I just wanted you guys to know that. Uh, so recently, I gained seventy five pounds. And I'm actually never going to lose that weight ever. But now I'm only gaining two pounds a week. So I fixed my weight problem. And I, I'm sure you guys are all really happy about that. I thought you were being serious for a second. Two a like, week? John, John, we're going to have a conversation here. But that was actually a very great analogy. The problem is fixed. <laughs> it's way, my weight gain is way down. What, what's the issue here? Well, I mean, you're on the path. You're on the path. Right path. Is it the average... Isn't average uh, U.S. male and women uh, uh, two pounds year over year, not week over week? <laughs> Maybe week over week is a bit much, but I want to be clear. <laughs> I, I gained a ton of weight. I'm still gaining weight, and I'm never, ever going to lose the weight that I gained. 
But the am I in a good change, position? The rate, of, the rate of change is down marginally, so that's a win. And we all say, yay. It's, but smart people that I talk to who follow the news can't understand this. Thanks, Krugman. I mean, unless John. you get like a massive depression, but that's another problem. Should get Julian up here. He's in the audience. Yeah, Another Julian, really we're tweet. talking about your tweet, man. You can come on up if you want. Um, John, I'm afraid to see you at Pacific Bitcoin, man. You're going to look big. Guy. <laughs> but, every, but everything's fine. I'm, I'm not gaining the weight as fast as I was. I don't, there's no problem here. We'll start Inflate, calling him a, we'll, inflated John. To, you have to start calling him Augustus. My weight gain was transitory. Yeah, he's vying for the biz job. This, is a, this all makes sense. There, there, there's, there's a, there's a weight requirement to have that job, and John is, John's apparently aiming for it. All right, I think this just came together here. Basically, what I said about the weight gain analogy, but it's a tweet with a meme of Augustine Carson's saying it and explaining to people how his weight gain was transitory and everything's fine. We, someone's got to put that together. It'll, it'll be me in the next week or so if someone doesn't do it before me. Well, you, you do it, and then we can all retweet it so you can get the credit for yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like... <laughs> I, you sounds like you need some outright deflation, man. Sam, oh. you, you said the D word? You would get censored in China, my friend. No, that's true. You, did you guys know you can't say the D word in China if you're an economist or a journalist? Or you else uh, you de- might disappear. Deficient inflation? You can say low inflation. What about negative inflation? lower inflation? <laughs> Maybe you might be able, that might be crossing a line. That's a gray area. But if you what say the D word. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Disinflation is good, actually. This, that's what we want. We want disinflation. Back down to, to 3% now. Since 2% is too hard of a target. It is crazy, though. They're, they're saying that everything's good. Like, I just. I tweeted this out yesterday there was a fed official that was like you know we're remaining data dependent but but policy's in a good place can you and, guys um, believe that they that they pulled off the soft landing i mean it's just so incredible i can't believe we're here already well <laughs> well at the same time you have paul saying like hey we're, we're navigating by the stars and cloudy skies and all the data is completely bunk i mean like They've injected trillions of dollars. There's economic lockdowns. It's unprecedented. If you look at any economic chart, it looks crazy. Like it's like a huge spike and a huge drop down. Like the data is completely like it doesn't make any sense. Like all their historical averages, all these models, and they're quote unquote data dependent now. And it's it's a problem. Not only that, but the most of the data is like lagging. This is what uh Peter St. Ange and I talked about on a Swan Signal last week, and that guy's hilarious. You guys should follow him. But it's just so funny that they keep saying they're data dependent when all the data is just completely out of whack from the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that conversation, Sam. I think both you and uh, Peter St. Ange did a good job. Um, I'm a fan of his. He uh, just has a good way of communicating. He's obviously very knowledgeable. I liked how he brought up the fact that uh, the U.S. has had some form of a central bank multiple times in the past, and we got rid of it. Probably the one that maybe people have heard of before was Andrew Jackson, because he was like this very brazen populist, and he kind of would bra- bragged about it if you 
read up on his history at all. He, I think he had a slogan that even said, I killed the bank. <laughs> and that was like, you know, what he was bragging about to people. Um, so there is some uh, history of the U.S. getting rid of a central bank. But um, I, I mean, that's probably a long conversation as to whether there's any chance that could really happen today. Um, but that, that was one of many things that I enjoyed that Peter St. Ange brought up in that conversation. Yeah, he also had a cool like, little history anecdote about China and how like the rise of paper money started in China, which I enjoyed. And didn't that tie into and the it, Mongols it somehow, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the Mongols. Yeah, yeah, shocker, it ended poorly. So they you printed mean, the money. <laughs> you mean they're not still using that same paper money and it didn't retain its value for uh, you know, 800 years ago or whenever the Mongols were around? Probably worth more if you held on to it. That's true. That sounds scarce now. Get a paper, one of those paper bills. Might trade it for Bitcoin. Sam, have we have we talked uh, macro at all? Is there anything? Uh, I know you just did a lot of macro. good writing. Um, macro, macro, macro. <laughs> uh, we talked a little about uh, oil. We talked a little about the price of oil ripping and um, a little bit, you know, like didn't really talk about why that's a big deal. I mean, basically it just throws a wrench in a lot of things. It throws the wrench in inflation. It could keep inflation elevated, make it challenging for the federal reserve um, because they desperately want to bring inflation down for, I think their own credibility, credibility really. Um, And if it remains elevated, it doesn't matter if they're jacking interest rates, if oil price keeps ripping because of, things outside their control, like OPEC plus cutting production. Um, but that's really all we talked about, John. I don't know if, uh, if you had any comments on that or uh, anything more broadly. Yeah, on that one, it is interesting because, you know, no one knows exactly how much the SPR being drained led to oil prices coming down, but it certainly had some impact. Um and uh, you have to wonder, you know, are we really going to drain the SPR down to zero to try to keep oil prices and, and CPI lower? Because um, right now we have we've yet to fill up the SPR, even though there were points where the administration said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, we're draining it now. But when oil prices are lower, we're going to fill it up again. And whatever price they indicated, they, they might fill it back up. Um, the price hit around there, and of course, they didn't fill it back up. So, you know, shocker, right, that the government didn't do that. Um, so you kind of have to wonder <clears throat> if there's these supply-demand imbalances that are potentially going to lead to higher oil, if the U.S. is in less of a position to drain the SPR, and if oil does sit in the 90s or even go higher for some amount of time, that likely will have a pretty big impact on CPI, and if CPI, you know, stays above three, uh, sure, people like Paul Krugman will declare victory and tell us that 3% is great and everything's fine. But like if it stays around three, four, five, uh, then maybe we are in that higher for longer environment. But I tend to believe if we're in that higher for longer environment, uh, that just doesn't go on as, as a soft landing. We get events where some sort of financial instability like what happened in March of 2023. There's some sector of the economy that gets hit by the impact of higher rates. 
in March of 2023, it was the banking sector that was holding these treasuries that were underwater and it caused actual bank runs on par with the size of bank failures that we saw in the great financial crisis. And the Fed, as we know, kind of slapped a piece of duct tape over it. I believe the amount of QE that they effectively had to do um, in the BTFP was a, like a reversal of six months of quantitative tightening. And, and yes, the Fed did get back to quantitative tightening after they did that uh, temporary uh, QE and, and the spike in the BTFP program. But I tend to think that's what we're going to see. There's going to be these uh, cracks in, in the ship, so to speak, that are going to show up. Maybe it'll be the banking sector again. Maybe it'll be the corporate debt sector in the next couple of years. Maybe it'll be the commercial real estate sector. Um, maybe it'll be the residential real estate sector because mortgage activity and housing sales are so low. So, yeah, I, I this has been something that the, the macro people have been saying for a while that higher for longer means, you know, something breaks eventually. We saw something break in March of 2023, and now I just think it's a matter of waiting for that next thing to break. Um, and it could come from one of a, of a variety of places, like I was just outlining. Well, like, I was on top of that, John, like, let's talk about the fact that, like, going into, like, on the topic of the SPR release, um, I listened to a Spaces from Dr. Anas the other night that Green Candle hosted, and two things were pretty interesting to me. One is that, yeah, on top of the fact that they said they were going to refill the SPR when uh, oil was $70, and they didn't. And then they've been only refilling at a rate of like, I think, 3 million barrels per month, which is like 10,000 barrels per day. No, no, no. I'm sorry. The math is off on that. Anyway, um, it's like 100,000 barrels per day or whatever. But uh, like the other interesting thing to me was that um, Dr. Anas mentioned how China refilled their SPR aggressively when nobody thought that they were going to, like while we were selling ours. So like there's an interesting relationship there, I, I think. Yeah, and just I'm gonna um, say something. Oh. Just real quick on the SPR. If they are refilling it, it's it's not even enough to be showing up in the chart because I'm looking at the EIA chart and it's uh, it has not yet ticked up. Like th this is as of June. Maybe they've done a little bit of refilling since then, but uh, it, it's like barely making uh, an impact. Matt, were you going to say something? Yeah. Um, quite frankly, I, I, I was going to say something a little more controversial that I don't think they should be refilling the SP, uh, the strategic oil preserve or reserve at these prices at these levels. Um, I mean, within the last 15 years, you have sustained periods of time where oil traded below 60, below 50, below 40. Hell, 2020, we all remember for a time it was $20 and even negative. Um, why why are you buying oil at 70 80 almost 90 why the whole point like let's try to remove ourselves from the politics of this the whole point is to sell an asset uh, at the top sell it expensive buy it when it's dirt cheap we all agree here that recessions are inevitable it's just a matter of timing it's just a matter of when buy that oil back in in times of recession you have the, the U.S. is such an interesting, unique uh, place that, um, for the for the large part, it's energy independent. 
Uh, but when you have a recession, when oil price is crashing, you have all sorts of uh, industry on this continent that's going to be suffering because the oil, selling oil and refining it and manufacturing it, that's their lifeblood. You want to be ready to support your own onshore oil industry and manufacturing and refinery by being a bidder of last resort in those times. Buying here, that's dumb. You're like, why? What, what, what was the point? You should have been, uh, you know, hindsight bias. Sure, we should have been buying as much as we could back in 2020. Fine, you started selling oil back in triple digits. That's correct. Sell it high. But buying it back right now, what's the point? You're in the middle. This is – anyway, I'll stop right So what you're saying, that is reasonable. It's just that one. I think one of the things you said was let's separate the politics from it. And I think the reality is that you can't separate the politics from it. And the fact that they said that they were going to start refilling it when oil went to whatever Mike said it was like around 70 and then they don't do it, that, that just kind of shows that they're going to tell you, hey, when oil drops to this level, we're going to refill it. But then they look around and they say, ah, refilling the SPR, that'll probably make oil go up, you know, 10 bucks a barrel or something like that. And that'll probably make CPI take a little bit higher. And that doesn't really help our administration. So then they don't do it. And this all kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the Keynesian argument, which like even the original Keynesian argument of, hey, let's run uh, government surpluses in good times and we'll run deficits in bad times. And that there's so many problems with that. Like no one even knows when you're necessarily in a good time or a bad time, but put that aside. That's at least more reasonable than what we do today. What that original um, statement morphed into was, let's run massive deficits in the bad times and we'll run slightly less massive deficits in the good times. And that's what I think this SPR would, would turn into. Now, it's a little bit different because you can't, at once you <laughs> zero out your SPR, you're at zero. But I would think that like, we would have some politicians say, oh, don't worry, we're going to refill this in the next recession when oil goes down to 20 some other politicians in power at that time, they don't refill it. And then we have a basically zero SPR and then maybe we end up needing it. And I, I just, I don't think there's actually a way to separate the politics. I don't think they would actually execute on timing the market appropriately and actually living up to their word about when they say they're going to refill it. Well, I think, I think the interesting thing on this topic is that, um, a, within the United States, you guys, uh, I think we all know that like the, the infrastructure that has been necessary to expand just hasn't been allowed to actually, well, there, there is a relationship of not being allowed. And then now it's to the point where like the majors just aren't doing it. Like they're kind of sitting on their hands because like fuck the rest of the markets. They've demonized oil and gas for so long. Um, but then there's also the interesting relationship on the demand for oil is, I believe it's actually higher than it was before the lockdowns now which not a lot of people were expecting. They were expecting this whole clean energy revolution to like produce the demand of oil, which funny, funny at you guys, uh, the clean energy requires oil. So it actually increased the demand. Um, and I think that, I think Matt, I think one of the reasons why they're not take like the, the reason they're not refilling the SPR is they're probably, I could see them just like letting supply and demand take over for a, a temporary moment and pop this economic bubble and because like when to the, from my understanding you let oil go up high you let inflation kind of roar back into uh into the like the site picture 
And then you let these companies get under significant pressure on top of the interest rate debacle. And then you actually start to kill demand that the Federal Reserve has been calling for for the last couple of years. And then you kill demand, you let oil price go back down a little bit, right, potentially. And then you can refill at that point. I don't know. Like, that's that's something I've been kind of thinking mulling over for the last couple of weeks. And it seems like it could be a very real strategy that they're trying to deploy. Yeah, it, I mean, uh, you're you're all right that unfortunately we we live in these two year to four year timeframes and uh, by our U.S. politics and it's it's really hard to get anyone to think big picture and farther out time horizon. Um, that's probably just the the short end of it, but um, yeah, it. Um, <laughs> It's funny, like other than other than disappointing Twitter and and uh, you know a handful of macro heads, I don't think any uh, average you. I don't want to say average. I don't think any normal U.S. voter is going to care one way or the other that the administration did or didn't start buying oil at seventy dollars a barrel. Like that's not even so close. That's not remotely on their radar. Or would they care? I I agree yeah. with that, but the point of the SPR is I think is lost on most people and understandably so people have their families and their lives like and there hasn't been a situation where we've needed the SPR but the original intent of the SPR is some catastrophic event it's like U.S. oil infrastructure being you know blown up or like other places we import oil from being blown up and we actually need this oil that's sitting within our country at that time. And it's kind of hard to envision us needing that. And that's probably what the, this administration used as a justification. It's like, well, what are the odds of that really happening? If, if that did happen and we needed the SPR and then we drained it to try to massage CPI, I think that would then get revealed as a very short-sighted decision. I got a, I got a few things. One is like, obviously oil is is political. I mean, the OPEC plus, you got Saudi Arabia and Russia cutting production, and you could say it's not political. It's very, very difficult to separate oil and politics. And, um, you know, if, if you think that like today's prices are good, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, because you brought up like lack of investment or somebody brought up lack of investment due to green energy policies and oil and gas. Um, but there's another thing, and Luke Roman points to this, which is that U.S. shale was 90% of oil production growth over the last 10 years. But and that, that, uh, Sam, real quick, on that that uh, report, because there was a similar report by uh, Gehring and Rothschild, or I can't pronounce the last name. Um, I believe that that number is specifically of non-OPEC oil production. Yeah, uh, non so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, non like basically, yeah, yes, U.S. Um, but, you know, it depended on cheap money. You know, it was expensive oil from cheap money, essentially. And now with Powell jacking interest rates, you know, that stuff becomes not profitable. Um, and so I think it could impact kind of long-term supply dynamics, which could lead to higher sustained prices for the price of oil. And then the other thing was that oil demand, like people think that there's like a big drop in oil demand during recessions. But what Groman was pointing out was that even in the 2020 drawdown, there was only a 4% drop in global oil demand. And then in the global financial crisis, there was only an 
drop in global oil demand. And so it's not like as big as people think. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there because I, I found it really fascinating because you kind of hear about you know oil crashing during recessions or oil demand cr- crashing. But, you know, Groman was pointing out, well, we didn't actually see that in two of the biggest financial crises of the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Perhaps not in demand, but uh, so growing up in Texas and, and going to school in Oklahoma, like this is big energy is, is the lifeblood. Um, and all across the, our, um, our Midwest, you have these oil fields and these uh, um, big players, small and big, that um, if it's $80 a barrel, they're making money. If it's 90, 100, they're full tilt, all operations are go. If the price starts to correct down and it falls below 60, it falls below 50, it falls below 40, they are, they are shutting down operations, furloughing workers, mothballing plants because it's unprofitable at those prices. If that reminds you of Bitcoin mining, it's, it's almost the exact same thing. It's just on a much larger and slower scale, but it's the same concept as price of, the bar- price of a barrel of oil. The higher it is, everyone, and I mean everyone, is turning on all of their operations, no matter how inefficient and expensive they are. Because, if, hey, if I'm making – if I make two bucks – uh, uh, a profit on every $10 I spend, well, who cares? I'm still making money on it. But as soon as that goes negative, shut it down, shut it all down. That's a, that's a great point, man. And you got, you got boots on the ground experience uh, being from Texas. So I appreciate your perspective. But this, but this is why I was saying uh, the earlier point of if only we had some longer-term thinkers, because um, that's when you would want to step in uh, if you were if you were U.S. government, if you were in charge of refilling the strategic oil reserve. So that's when you would want to step in and, and start being that buyer at the bottom bidder of last resort at thirty dollars, forty dollars, fifty dollars barrel of oil, because you not only are you refilling, um, you know, your your break glass in case of emergency uh, reserve, but you're also literally keeping U.S. workers uh, in the hundreds of thousands, not hundreds, tens of thousands uh, across your Midwest employed. You're, you're keeping uh, unemployment um, from getting worse in a lot of regions in the middle of your country. I just checked out the CME futures tool to see what the chance of a Fed rate hike is at their September 20th meeting, which is the next meeting uh, in a couple weeks. 95% chance of a pause. And uh, I can't even remember this. Have they paused yet? Were there any meetings up till now where they did they have like a pause and then they started hiking after it? Or would this be the first pause in this rate hike cycle? We had that skip, yeah. There was a right. There's a there's a skip in months. Yeah, they take August. Yeah, meaning meaning a skip. They didn't have a meeting, or did they actually have a meeting where they kept rates? They, they paused. They kept rates the same at a meeting. They had a meeting and kept rates the same. Okay. Okay. They 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 were telegraphing for a while that they were going to skip skip rates skip rates. 
kind of do it every other month. Um, as long as the data kind of suggested that and they started executing on that. Well, no, my, my point is they, they always take August off. There is no FOMC meeting in August. People think Jackson a whole, but that's really their, you know, their uh, uh, getaway Ooh, retreat. Yeah. Next one's coming up. It'll be uh, September 19th, 20th. Um, I want to pivot a little bit. I guess it's kind of related to energy and uh, Texas. Uh, did you guys see that Riot made a record 31 million from power credits in August? That's wild. That's wild. I like spoke. Yeah, I spoke to Jason uh, last, the CEO, um, at a Swan Salon a couple months ago, and um, he kind of talked about these proprietary power agreements. But to see it bring in that kind of, you know, thirty-one million in one month alone—that's crazy. I did see um, a bunch of takes on Twitter. It would be great if someone has a, a good understanding of how those agreements work. Um, I, I only have a superficial understanding, which is that uh, it, it's the reason that they can get quote unquote paid that much money is that there are other people willing to pay a lot more for the power at that time. Um, which I think is why the whole thing makes sense. Um, but someone can correct me on that or elaborate on it, but there were a lot of yeah. takes on, on Twitter. Just wanted to say this real quick. There were people just like looking at it very superficially and they're like, look, your tax dollars are going towards paying this Bitcoin miner. And some of them were getting a lot of traction and they, and like people were just saying, you know, this can't happen. Why are my tax dollars going to this? And there just seems to be a lot of confusion about the whole topic. Yeah. Luckily, um, it, it seems like ERCOT and current, uh, Texas legislature and Bitcoin miners are all on the same page. So you're right. You got a lot of loud mouths being disingenuous on Twitter saying, where are my tax money going? But, um, the people in charge seem to be uh, seem to have their heads on straight. So it's very important that Sam and John, you you kept saying power credits. That's exactly right. ERCOT didn't cut Riot a thirty five million or thirty thirty million dollar check. They didn't just give them cash money bags at their front door like thank you for shutting off. Those are, those power credits let Riot um, mine Bitcoin, run operations in the future at no cost like okay well, we're going to have a couple energy bills of zero but you d they're not getting a big check in the mail uh and that's the biggest problem that you keep seeing get repeated over and over on twitter like how dare these bitcoin miners just literally get paid to to flip a switch and turn off well they're not actually getting paid they still have to do proof of work in the future to make that bitcoin but because they shut off during uh, really, um, you know, terrible times of peak energy usage in Texas. Now, okay, you can run operations later when there's not that big energy demand and we're not going to charge you. Big difference. And it's unfortunate because I'm just looking at the CNBC article here and I want to read into it to see if they elaborated on it. But the headline is literally 
Texas paid Bitcoin miner Riot $31.7 million to shut down during heat wave in August. So unfortunately, the headline reads like exactly what you said. It's not, Matt. Like it, it makes people think that they did give them a bag of cash and said, here's $31 million. Thanks, you know, thanks for shutting down. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Sam. Well, I just think it's important to understand that this was a strategy from Riot and that they put up financial capital and collateral to obtain those fixed costs to, to be able to do this, these mandatory curtailments. So they have contracts in place with ERCOT. So when extreme events happen, you know, the price of power goes up because the supply is constrained. The Riot can curtail and essentially, you know, sell the power back at the market price, the utility provider, and capture that spread. And so they benefit, you know, from those events, but there's cost to it. Like they put up financial capital and collateral to obtain those low fixed costs. And so I just think this is a, a it's a strategy. It's a, it's a proprietary power strategy is what they call it. It's, it's capitalism. It's, it's providing a service uh, to the grid when they need it. And, um, you know, they, like I said, they put up financial capital and collateral to to get into these contracts to be able to benefit from these extreme events, and I think it's a win win situation uh, for ERCOT as well. So, I see nothing wrong with it at all. Yeah. Oh no, uh, Riot. It, it shows how brilliant this forward thinking was because you're right. They were they were laying the groundwork for this this whole cycle, and even before the 2020 having that this was in the in the works um and it also really shows you just how um uh tricky your energy mix uh and how important it is to have a uh, a diverse grid uh these these what why did these energy crises keep happening uh this past week this past month at, at sundown well because all of a sudden you lose all of your solar energy and if the wind isn't blowing steady, you lose all that too. So there's this massive demand spike as everyone's getting off work. They still need their air conditioning, maybe even turn it up a bit as the whole family gets home. Everyone's turning on their you know, TVs and whatnot, uh, charging, charging up the electric car, the Lucid or whatever. Um, imagine all the Netflix uh, being spun up so all your data centers are uh, firing on all of a sudden firing on all cylinders and like so i mean just all across the board if you don't have that demand response uh carefully managed uh you're gonna run into brownouts almost every single day uh and and it's really nice to see these bitcoin miners be able to increase the capacity of the energy grid give them a big buffer that way uh, they know these demands are going to come in these peak summer hot months, uh, but be able to uh, take them in stride. Um, wow, it's a beautiful thing. It's really interesting watching these uh, uh, the uh, economic theory play out uh, in real time. It seems to me like the main thing being lost here is that what's not being said, and I believe this is how it works, is that if this is in... Uh, the best interests of the, the grid because they, there are other people who demand energy that they will pay a higher price at that point in time than the 31 million. 
So they can say, all right, Riot, we'll give you these $31 million in energy credits because at this point in time, we're going to sell energy to someone else who's going to pay more than $31 million for it. Uh, that, that just seems to be getting lost on people. And again, it's, they have this visual as if they're just writing a check to the Bitcoin miner for $31 million and that there's like no other money moving or energy being demanded elsewhere. Yeah, the messaging needs to be better. I agree. I just um, when you're looking at these miners and the approaching having having these kind of strategies in place where they lock in low fixed costs is one way that miners can uh, kind of get a one up on their competition in my in my mind. So you know, Riot having these contracts in place, I think prepares them for the having potentially better than a miner who doesn't. Right. So um, it's very like a uh, it's creative. It's creative uh, that they're doing this, and it, it makes a lot of sense, especially as the having approaches. Yeah, you're really seeing. I mean, they everyone says build in the bear market, but you are really seeing the players get separated from the pretenders uh, as far as Bitcoin miners in this one. Um, Riot. Right, since they're on our, since we're talking about them, they're sitting on something like it's very impressive. They're, they're sitting on fat profit margins of somewhere between sixty to seventy percent. Maybe it's a little better with these uh, uh, recent summer months and their curtailing, but just juicy fat profit margin. While you have the lower bottom of the barrel that are, uh, quite frankly, barely breaking even, or they might be in the red based on Bitcoin price at this at this uh, end, this difficulty. Um, and then you have uh, uh, Bitcoin miners like Marathon that, you know, they've been scooping up and buying and deploying the latest and greatest X19 XPs where <laughs> not only not only is that the most hyper-efficient and powerful, but every, every single machine they put online, they know good and well they're putting someone out of business uh, and offline. So... Um, it's one of the most hyper-competitive uh, spaces, industries that I certainly have ever seen. And it's just, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, Riot's also got a lot of those new orders coming in for those next-gen hardware. And um, I just like that the, the business is vertically integrated. So they even owned the company that makes the parts for their machines. You know they're completely vertic vertically integrated. Yeah, what's minor? Yeah. Yeah, it's not. All right, I forgot what it's called. Um, but oh, yeah, yeah, no, like it's like no, it's like literally like a um, a company. It's not even like a Bitcoin company, but they just make the parts for their infrastructure, and that's kind of what they thought process was. They want to own every part of their business from the top down, and um, yeah, you know, I just think the having the having is interesting to me because I personally I I don't. I, I this might be controversial. I don't understand why people think that the having it's like things get scarcer because it's just the issuance getting cut in half, but there's still most of the supply, the circulating supply is still on the market and it could be bought and sold. You know, the the effect of the having on the immediate price is not that interesting to me. It doesn't really make sense. It's just the issuance getting cut in half. What's interesting to me is the effect on the Bitcoin mining industry. I think that's that's the most interesting part of the having. And seeing the effects that it has on mining, so that's just a personal take. But 
um, as it approaches, I'm really watching the strategies that these miners are employing to see if they can survive it. Yeah, I mean, effects of the having is uh, <laughs> could spend a while debating that one, and I'm sure you know plenty of Bitcoiners would have differing opinions, and it's <laughs> yeah. it's hard to point to cause and effect. And I personally, I don't have too strong a view on it, and it also gets tricky because a lot of times we you're looking in the past and you're saying, well, hey, this relationship seems to have held up in the past, and uh, you know maybe it will hold up in the future, but then maybe there's other factors that. Um, overtake it. So I, I tend to not have too strong a view on that, but just elaborating on what you were saying, Sam, I, I could see a lot of what you just said to be true. But then I would say if if one of the biggest effects of the having it's is its impact on miners, if you have Bitcoin at a point in its um, development where miners are a big source of buying and selling, then you know, perhaps that is what ends up impacting the price. Um, but, you know, that there's there's a lot to unpack there. And like I said, there's just so many other variables and we're kind of like well, big, going, but yeah, go ahead. Well, well, big picture, this is exactly why, uh, ironically, Bitcoin having is never priced in. This is exactly why. Um, I've, I've, this will be my third. And every single time you get the weirdest FUD about how this having is going to absolutely break the backs of Bitcoin miners or because fees aren't exactly where someone thinks they should be uh, only eight years, 12 years, 14 years into Bitcoin's existence. It, all of the, uh, I, I definitely don't want to go into a whole BIP 300, 301 drive chains debate, but all of this is all is all of a piece. It's this massive amount of FUD where people think Bitcoin should be where somewhere else and it's not there yet in their mind's eye. And they look at the having as this massive catalyst of potential disaster. And when and when the having comes and goes and guess what? Bitcoin didn't die and everyone's not instantly somehow out of business. That's that's literally it. It, it, all these people that are completely offside, and that's why, not all the time, but that's why the having price is never fully priced in. And, it, it, and for whatever odd reason, you do seem to see more bullish months post having than pre. Well, on top of that, Matt, you've got the relationship with like with the, those same kind of fears as far as like impacting the mining activity and the hash rate. Um, where like we've had plenty of uh, evidence in just the last year alone how there's sovereign nations that have been incorporating Bitcoin mining regardless of whether they're actually earning a revenue off of it, like Bhutan and Oman. Um, they're obviously doing this in secret. Like they're they're not gonna publicize it. And like I can't remember which one was like was actually leaked. Was it Bhutan where they didn't make like a like a public announcement? Um, that was Bhutan, yeah, and Oman yeah, yeah. was this week, yeah. Yeah, and then on top of that, um, I've gotten to some <laughs> some spirited debates with uh, very like career oil and gas and energy guys that don't buy into the fact that uh, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, all these guys have been uh, doing their own kind of case studies and experiments, particularly out in North Dakota, 
to incorporate Bitcoin mining into their operations. And the, the more that I have conversations with these, uh, these professionals, these individuals that are actually in the space, including those that are not just those that are down here in Houston, but just abroad and online, um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that just people with, even within their, that, that industry itself aren't aware of. So like, yeah, when it comes to like the, the Bitcoin having and people thinking it's going to just absolutely crush the mining revenue for operators, it's just, it's just not true. And it's, it's not just, it, it's not just retail. Um, as we know, Bitcoin's a half a trillion dollar asset. So let's face it, big money, business, sovereign nations, et cetera, family, mass, big family offices. That's who's truly going to be driving price uh, into the into the far future but one odd thing about the having two is let's just pretend we're a new bitcoin startup i don't it doesn't matter our business it could be mining could be some could be wallets could be something else but banks understand bitcoin having two they know it's an event we can't promise we know exactly what the price will be the day before the having so oddly enough Financial services don't want to give you a new line of credit or loan or hear your business plan right before having. They want to give. They want to do all that after the having as well, just because they just it's that uncertainty. And you know, it, even if they're willing to do business with you at all, but they, just just telling them, well, well, you know, we can't really tell you exactly what price will be before the having, but it's going to be this event and yada yada. Like the, they're they're tuning you out and they're they're saying, well, you know what, let's revisit this post having. So it, it it's this whole culmination of odd uh, events and um, ironies that I've never ever ever believed that the Bitcoin price is priced into a having. Well, and then going even further. Like this recent development with FASB, I brought this up on Simply Bitcoin yesterday. Um, this provides a massive boon to Bitcoin miners and oil and, and any energy producer that is utilizing Bitcoin mining. Like they don't, they don't have to uh, if they don't want to, or if they see it as an investable asset in order to to boost the the, the value of their balance sheet. Um, now with this FASB ruling, they don't have to just like report back to shareholders and stakeholders that like the, the value of the company was diminished because they were holding Bitcoin, right? And that provides a, a greater justification for investment and like buy-in as far as like, because like the conversation around the whole FASB relationship, I, what I heard was mostly around like corporate treasuries and like uh, particularly banking. But from the way I understand it is that now... Bitcoin miners and energy producers that are utilizing Bitcoin mining and putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet that may be excess that they don't have to sell as far as covering liabilities and costs. Um, the having in the bull markets are going to be way more beneficial to all of these operators. Like it, this is like, I have to agree that this bear market has been probably the most bullish that I've seen. Like I'm getting really, really excited. Also, it's it's arguably not really a bear market, right? Andy Edstrom did a, a thread on this where he said, if it was a bear market, what would happen? Bad news, um, price goes down. Good news, price does not go up. But we've seen the Bitcoin price go up on news of uh, Ripple winning partially against the SEC and Grayscale winning against the SEC. So I'm not sure it's... It's more of a sideways market to me, or a very light bear market. 
Yeah, I think people could probably, you know, label it different ways and it gets a little bit into semantics. But <clears throat> speaking of bear market, I just wanted to highlight that what I thought was a good tweet from an account that I've definitely got some good information from uh, Macroscope and the handle is at Macroscope17. And he just drew this comparison. Um, I'll just read like the first sentence or two. Seeing lots of tweets about Bitcoin and lower engagement public interest. I personally find this fascinating and any trade act, trader active 20 years ago should be getting flashbacks. In terms of sentiment and interest, 2023 equals 2003. You can go to the dusty finance message boards for Amazon and other eventual winners and see the same dynamic back then. Um, and he said some other interesting stuff, but I think the analogy here is, uh, is definitely relevant. And as a, uh, a brief trivia question, so if Amazon's stock price hit a high in 1999, does anyone know when it, what year it regained that 1999 stock price high? Oh, I'm not going to cheat and look. Isn't it like 10 years later, something ridiculous? It's uh, about eight years later. It's, it's second half of 2007 is yeah. when, it, when it regained that high. So. I just I think this is an analogy. It's obviously not the same in all respects, but you know that that's what an analogy is. It's it's the same in, in some respects, not all respects. I can't help but think in you know 2003 there were probably people looking at Amazon and saying things like ah they just sell books online and some other stuff online. How big of a deal is that? And oh look at this, it's been you know five years and they haven't taken out their internet bubble, stock price high, you know, I'm just not that excited about this. And then we obviously know how the rest of that story plays out. And I think there's just uh, something to be said about what is kind of happening in terms of Bitcoin public interest and perception right now. Agree, except I think the time scale is much more compressed. So what took Amazon seven years or whatever to do, Bitcoin can do in two years or three years. Um, because of all the tailwinds behind bank custodians, FASB, and Bitcoin ETFs, which should happen, just not this year. It just takes time. But when it happens, it's going to be massive. Crazy, Terrence, that is happening this year. <laughs> I'm happy to bet anyone, 21 to 1 odds, anyone I know who's not a credit risk, who's kind of party risk. Um, 21 to 1 odds, no launch of any U.S. bought Bitcoin ETF before year end. Ship it, baby. I want to make money off dumbass, bullish, hopium bros. Somebody call Greg. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll, take that. I'll, take those odds. I'll take those odds in SATs. No. Do you know why? Because if no you're deal. right, then the SATs will be more, much more. And if you're wrong, the stats will be worth much less. So I'm just screwing myself. Terrence, I'm curious. Um, do you yeah, think sure. that Binance, like all the situation mm -hmm. that's going on around Binance has to get resolved before uh, there's any kind of approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF? No, but I think there needs to be more progress, um, a little more clarity on like, are, is the DOJ going to do a settlement? Are they going to do something that could cause crypto to crash and quote unquote destroy the market, at least transitorily? Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I would expect like what, here's the key fact on the day, the great scale one, right? Three to zero, you supported the heel, great victory, great sales, congratulations. Very still a scammer. But, uh, um, on that same day, the SEC did what? Had a timely press release saying, by the way, we have uh, 37 or so sealed documents filed um, against Binance. And the reason you seal documents is one of three reasons. Witness tampering, you're worried about witness tampering, protecting the witness, um, or DOJ is doing something, right? Or um, they have evidence in those 37 documents that implicates others that the SEC or other US authorities might go after. Could be Tron, could be um, OKCoin, Hobie, who knows, right? But there's definitely a perception that there's a lot of wash trading that should, at least by some, that you need to get rid of this wash trading before the surveillance sharing agreement that BlackRock and others are, are citing for Coinbase uh, to be like a price source. If Coinbase is just 2% of the market, that's not a real price. Point. But if Coinbase is 20% of the market because you got rid of or reduced a lot of the wash trading, then Coinbase looks like a more credible price source and you can actually detect some fraud um, as opposed to right now when it's more of a black box. So I think, um, yeah, long-winded answer, but bottom line, there needs to be some things that need to happen. I don't think... Look, I, I like a lot of these no-pointer friends. They, they hate all the altcoins. I hate all altcoins. Um, they also hate Bitcoin, and they're a little delusional to think about Tether. But they, they're the ones who are saying, um, I think the most on Twitter that I see, that you have to uh, resolve this completely, and everything's going to get cleaned up before BlackRock will allow uh, any, any, any uh, Bitcoin ETF to launch under their name. I don't think that's correct. I think BlackRock wants to be first and ahead of uh, Rayscale and whoever else. So yeah, they're probably, if I'm BlackRock, I'm saying, look, I want to be first. I understand maybe you guys want to wait a little bit because you're cleaning up uh, crypto, but let's not wait forever. And we should go first because we're the most reputable, we're the biggest, we're the best, and you trust us most, the government, and we're the most respected by investors. This will be a good signal to the market that you're not trying to destroy Bitcoin. Personally, I'd be kind of surprised if the SEC picked a winner. I think the optics would just be too obvious, but maybe you're right. Maybe they will pick yeah. BlackRock. Oh, I'm just saying BlackRock will argue that way. I'm not saying the SEC will do it. I agree with the optics. They might do like, like if I'm the SEC, honestly, I grayscale or putting them last and moving them to the back of the line. Why? Because they did an end run with backdoor fake ETF, piece of junk that charges 2% a year, has horrible liquidity, very wide bid offer spreads, and ridiculous NAV discount, which many of us have suffered from for many months now. It's just a terrible product that doesn't work um, the grayscale trust, as we've seen in retrospect. Expensive, that's well, for sure. So I would punish them. I would punish them and not give them an ETF because I probably told them, someone at BCC probably told Grayscale, no, you can't do an ETF. And they did like a worse version to dump on US retail and make these huge fees. 
What I got, what I got from that from Terrence was 2023 20, spotted TF. That's I, I just. <laughs> okay, I'll bet you in stock. Well, we're kind of at, out of time. I don't, if, I don't know if you guys wanted to uh, go around the, uh, the the horn here and just have final comments real quick from anybody that wants to. Um, John, Matt, Terrence, Dom, Mike. I will selfishly shout out my own tweet. Uh, another trivia question here. What did Vladimir Lenin, John Maynard Keynes, and the Austrian School of Economics all agree on? Believe it or not, they all agree that debasing the currency is the best way to destroy society. Yes, that's right. The leader of the uh, Bolsheviks and the Soviets, Vladimir Lenin, actually said that. John Maynard, Ke- John Maynard Keynes wrote extensively on this and agreed with Lenin. And the Austrian School of Economics uh, obviously agrees with that. So that's a little stat for you on this Friday. All three of those people agree. Debasing the currency, fastest way to destroy society. All right. Well, that's probably a good way to end it. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, everyone who joined. Uh, John. John, I love it. Um, thanks, everyone, who joined and, and spoke today. I had a lot of fun hosting, uh, filling in for Alex. Um, and so thank you so much. This is Cafe Bitcoin. This is the number one place for Bitcoin news every weekday morning, brought to you by swan.com. You can check out um, our educational resources and all our services at swan.com. And also Pacific Bitcoins happening October 5th and 6th. Go to PacificBitcoin.com. Check out the speaker list. Uh, there's a lot of workshops and satellite events. Go hang out with other Bitcoiners in beautiful Santa Monica, October 5th and 6th. That's only like a month away. And so happy Friday, everyone. Everyone have a great weekend. Touch some grass, stack some sads. Uh, it's always a pleasure.